Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. The woke madness in history education is off the rails. Well, how do we change it? McClanahanAcademy.com. And because you listen to this podcast, if you use the coupon code PODCAST at checkout, you get 25% off every day, all day, 365 days a year on every class at McClanahanAcademy.com. So go to McClanahanAcademy.com, use coupon code PODCAST at checkout, and get a real history education at 25% off. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. A new book challenges the 1619 Project thesis, and we'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. It's free to enroll. Get that free class, 10 Myths of American History, when you do enroll, and then purchase a course or 20 there. There is a great coupon out there, 35% off. If you're listening to this in November of 2023, 35% off. Just use the coupon code BLACKFRIDAY23 at checkout. You get 35% off every single class at McClanahan Academy. So it's a win-win. You get great content, and you keep this podcast free of charge. You can also support the show by clicking on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. It makes for a great gift. You can also click on the support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way or go to uh, Spotify for podcasters, throw a few pennies my way there, or click on the heart button if you're watching on YouTube, the super thanks button. Again, throw a few pennies my way that way. Purchase one of my books. Again, that also makes a great gift for Christmas. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast so people know you love it. Share it around on social media. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can. And comment on YouTube for the algorithm. Also, send me those show requests. I do want to see what you want to hear. All right. Well, if you've listened to this podcast for any amount of time, you know I've talked about David Hackett Fisher's Albion Seed. I remark, I've remarked that it's one of the best books, and if you had to pick a book to read uh, for American history, I would choose that particular book. It's really good. It's not perfect, and it's not the be-all, end-all of every history book, but if you understand the cultural foundations of British North America, you will understand a little more about American politics even to this day. You'll understand some of the fascinating aspects of American history that have to do with these cultural divergencies that we had. Even though everyone came from England, it didn't mean they were all culturally homogenous. So it's, it's important to know that. Now, David Hackett Fisher has written a number of great books, but he has a new one out, and I'm going to show it to you here if you're watching on YouTube. It's entitled African Founders. Now, this book has been out for a few months, um, and some people have asked me about it. I haven't had time to talk about it yet, but... There was a review of it written at Law and Liberty, which is Liberty Fund's website. So I thought I would cover the book there with the review. 
But let me just make some general observations about this particular book. And one thing the book review does, does as well. First, this book, in some ways, it wasn't designed to do it, but in some ways takes down the 1619 Project's primary thesis that black Americans were passive victims and had no agency in what they were doing. Now, I would say that it's, it's part of their thesis. They want you to believe in this victimhood. Now, if you read the 1619 Project carefully, you'll see that they don't even necessarily believe that, but they want to portray that. And if you just go look at Nicole Hannah-Jones' first essay, she talks about how there were certainly black Americans who had agency who were trying to resist this stuff, but of course it was the structure of American society that created the problems. And Hackett Fisher in some ways would argue that's also true. But he also shows that black Americans in this book, in this book did have agency. They were working to try to, in their own way, transformed society in a way that they accepted and realized. And even before you got to the Declaration of Independence in 1776. Now, this is not the first book to do this. In fact, if you go back and look at American historiography and you look at particularly on this issue, slavery and the slave world, if you just go to Time on the Cross, one of the reasons that Fogland Engerman wrote Time on the Cross was to show that black Americans were not necessarily passive victims, that they weren't just uh, stupid people who couldn't do anything. The whole point of that book was to show that black Americans were great workers, they worked efficiently, they did things well, and that they weren't just brutalized by this institution. In fact, they argue that the institution wasn't as brutal as people think, but that they actually participated in the economy and were good at what they did. A lot of people focus on the material aspects of the book and, of course, the material aspects of slavery and, and food and clothing and these kind of things. But Fogel and Engerman wanted to show that this U.B. Phillips premise that slaves were essentially um, worthless, terrible workers wasn't true. Now, Phillips was a very good historian. And um, if you don't read U.B. Phillips, if you're reading American Slavery and you don't read U.B. Phillips, you're missing out. Uh, he would be considered uh, you know, archaic today because of his views on race, but his material is very good. So I would recommend reading U.B. Phillips. Other books like uh, Thornton's Africa and Africans in the Making of the Atlantic World, again, the whole point was to show that Africans had agency in the institution. They were driving it, in essence. They were the ones that were determining uh, how much slaves cost, the, the uh, supply and demand of slaves. They did all of that. They weren't just passive victims by European slave traders. So all of these books really blow apart that 1619 thesis of victimhood. It doesn't mean that some of these things didn't happen, that there weren't, uh, there weren't as, as Hackett Fisher shows, there weren't abuses in the system. Of course there were. But his point is to show that there was more complexity to black American history than what you would get in a very simplistic version of, say, the 1619 Project. My problem with the 1619 Project is not those conclusions, because I think that that's something, if you go out and read enough history, you would say that, um, okay, that's, you know, that, that's true. My problem with the 1619 Project is the proposition nation myth. It, it buys into that. And what Fisher does in some ways is blow that apart, too, that 
That didn't necessarily drive, the proposition nation myth didn't necessarily drive black American history, particularly in places like New England, where he says that there was actually efforts to try to create what they considered to be a more equitable society before 1776. My problem is that the 1619 Project builds on this proposition nation myth and it perpetuates it. Now, what they would say is that the myth exists, but Americans were not committed to it, and I agree with that. Americans were not committed to the proposition nation. That is something that came out really in the 1850s. You start seeing it more and more. You started seeing it more in the 1830s, but as Hackett Fisher shows, in the North, Northerners weren't committed to this either. Really, at all. Particularly in places like Pennsylvania. Uh, but you see that um, you have this, this belief system that's not necessarily ingrained in American society. That's what the 1607 Project really is all about, what we're working on at Abbeville Institute. If you don't know about it, go to 1607project.com. Uh, that documentary and book will be out next year, and it's going to be a, a great collection of essays entitled Virginia First, and it is placing Virginia at the heart of the American experience, but not because of slavery, because of what Virginia provided to the United States, which is still long-lasting to this day. And it's not some ideological construct at all. It's something else. It's practical. And I think that's important. We have, to, we have to emphasize that. So let me get into the book. If you've read Albion Seed, this will seem familiar. In fact, it's been called the Albion Seed for Black American History. It's a little more complex than that and a little different. In fact, what he does very well is weave Albion Seed into the experience of black Americans. For example, when he talks about Pennsylvania... He talks about Quaker culture and how black Americans fit within Quaker culture. Same thing with Puritan society. Same thing with the borderlands, what we often call you know, loosely Celtic culture, but it's, it's bigger than that. And then also Cavalier society in Virginia. He does this very well, but he also takes the areas of Albion's seed, you know, for example, uh, work ways and religious ways and these kind of things, and infuses that with African society, right? So... And he also talks about the origins, the various origins of African culture in America. It's not monolithic. And that's something that I think you really need to understand in this book. Just like white American society is not monolithic, we've recognized that sort of with the influx of Germans or Irish or Italians. But even in the British society, it wasn't monolithic. If we just understood that, we would, we would get a better picture of America. But he also explains in this book that African society was not monolithic either and that the Africans that arrived in North America were not monolithic. And this is something that white Americans understood in the colonial period as uh, up to the time that the, the slave trade stopped in the early 19th century there were people that understood that various regions of Africa in their mind were preferable to others because of the people that were coming in from those areas. That's something interesting, and the, and the review points that out. All right, so let's get into this. It's written by Ken Masugi, who is a West Coast Straussian, and um, his conclusion is West Coast Straussianism on steroids. So I'm going to not really, I'm not going to bash the West Coast Straussians today. I think the review is worthwhile, uh, but um, keep that in mind. So the review says, Brandeis University historian David Hackett Fisher's African Founders illuminates the leading controversies today with facts that shame political cant 
and enable us to reassess the centuries of slavery's effects on American national character. In a scholarly tome of over 900 pages, Fisher follows the method of his earlier work, Albion's Seed. There he traced the peopling of America from the perspective of the character of different regions of Britain, which is a nice summary of what this book does. Yes, it's the same form, same method, but he does infuse Albion's Seed into this book. And how he, I think he does show that Africans were part of a larger British North American society. They didn't dominate society, and when he tries to make claims that they started you know, really being a major contributor to the direction of American politics as active participants. Some of that is maybe stretching it a little bit, but nevertheless, um, it's, it's important to understand what he's doing with this book. African Founders achieves the equivalent with the enslaved peoples from Africa, who have hitherto largely been treated as hapless, homogenous heap of unfortunates, and blank slates completely recreated by masters and brutal overseers. Now again, that isn't true. Have hitherto largely been treated. No, no. If you go back from the 1970s forward, it, it, this is what people believe because this is what you get in mainstream culture. But if you look at Roll Jordan Roll by Eugene Genovese, he doesn't, doesn't show that at all. Or if you read Fogel and Engerman's Time on the Cross, that's not true at all. And those are the two dominant books on American slavery in American historiography. Those two books, I mean, there are some others, of course, that are important, but those two books have driven it since the 1970s. And neither one of those would say that slaves were hapless and unfortunate. I mean, they were unfortunate. But they weren't just hapless unfortunates. They weren't just blank slates. They all brought something to it. Roll Jordan Roll certainly does that. And you have to understand that this is, you know, we often forget that. It's, it's amazing that when Eugene Genovese dies, a lot of this stuff comes out. A lot, the 1619 project becomes prominent because Genovese would have excoriated this thing. He would have blown it apart, and it wouldn't have worked. In fact, even the things, the conclusions like uh, slavery was the basis of American capitalism, all these kind of accusations, Genovese had been fighting against that stuff for years. But we don't read enough history. We don't read enough good stuff. We read popular garbage like the 1619 Project. Fisher does not hold back on detailing the brutality of slavery, but he also insists on keeping in mind the abiding character traits exhibited by the slaves from different regions of Africa. No rewrite of roots, this scholarship forces corrections and perception created by the ideological uses of black American history then and now. Properly interpreted, this persuasive array of facts and historical exploration is an invaluable weapon against woke nonsense. Perhaps that is why its reception has been, for the most part, less than enthusiastic. Fisher's narratives convey an excitement that inspires awe and gratitude to the reader. Now, I will say this. Just like in Albion's Seed, the way that he, that he drives the narrative is choppy. So, for example, if he's talking about punishments or brutal workways in New England, it's about maybe five paragraphs at the most, and he lets it drop, and he just leaves a statement. Things were bad, kind of thing and then gives a footnote. He doesn't go into a great detail. Now, in 900 pages, and if he's covering an entire cultural region, it's hard to do. So if you don't have any kind of 
experience with these things, you might be left a little thirsty. Like, okay, well, is there more to it? You're, you're getting into it and then it stops. Or he'll just make statements, well, I mean, this was generally like this, and then he lets it drop. So there is that part of it. If you're not familiar with Albion Seed, you'll get that in that particular book too. He gives you a scattering of examples. And this lends to charges of cherry picking and other things. But when you look at, if you if you include this in books like Roll, Jordan, Roll, and again, Fogel and Eggerman's Time on the Cross, if you put these things together, you'll get a more complete picture. You just have to read more. So I do agree that it can be a weapon against woke nonsense. That people, you know, people haven't talked about this stuff before. And look, Fisher is a historian's historian. The man is thorough. He understands his material. He does a very good job with this. It's not like he just goes out and finds something and just says, this is, I mean, the man does his research. He is an award-winning historian in the best way. And he's a pro. And he'll say things that may not be popular, but because they're true, he's going to say them. So the piece continues, a revealing example of the fruits of his approach is his study of slavery in the Chesapeake Bay region, which compromises Maryland and eastern Virginia with Baltimore to the north, Richmond, Jamestown, Williamsburg, and Norfolk to the south, and Alexandria toward the middle on the Potomac. I do agree this is a really fascinating part of the book, and it is a part of the book that shows this particular culture, uh, particularly watermen in the Chesapeake. This was really interesting. I, if you've ever you know, gone out and listened to sea shanties, and there's that the sea shanties that came out of sailors. It's really good stuff, you know, David Coffin. But what you also find is that there were black sea shanties. And this all came out pretty much of the Waterman area of the Chesapeake Bay, Delaware Bay, Chesapeake Bay, uh, down to the Atlantic, and even along the coast of the Carolinas, you had this Waterman culture, this black American Waterman culture. And it's really fascinating stuff. I, I enjoyed this part of the book tremendously. Of course, I'm I'm from that region. So I enjoy this part of the book tremendously. Um, and he does show that there is this tight culture in that region that is not defined by anything European. I mean, this was this was completely created by these people. And when you read Roll, Jordan, Roll, you're going to get that too in different areas. And I think Fisher does a very good job to show that there was certainly a subculture. There was a strong African subculture in America. Genovese said that you know Africans may be considered a nation within a nation, but they're American. And I think that's what Genovese, I'm sorry, what Fisher is showing too. So the piece says, Fisher's tightly organized account covers three regions, north, south, and frontier, each with three geographic subregions that describe in detail different traits described to the way these chosen slaves and their descendants interacted with whites. Fisher begins by asking why the Chesapeake Bay region of the early United States produced outstanding black leaders such as Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, and Booker T. Washington, two Marylanders and a Virginian. In 1790, Virginia's overall African population was 37%, with 35% in Maryland. Although slaves came from various parts of Africa, Fisher estimates that during the slave trading era, about half of all arriving Africans in the Chesapeake came from what is now southeastern Nigeria, were known uh, variously as Igbos and others. They came directly or indirectly from the West Coast African re I'm sorry, West Central African regions of Congo and Angola. 
The regions became known for fostering slaves who worked hard and displayed discipline and intelligence. So again, showing that you have um, these regional areas, that there is, Africa is a continent. It's not one monolithic thing. And that there are regional parts and that people from different areas had different cultures themselves when they arrived. They produced a different kind of culture here because they brought with them things from where they came. Buying slaves of particular ethnicity therefore became important for economic output and efficiency and for fostering marriages. So slave dealers would often seek Igbos. Later, such enterprising Igbos became known as the Jews of Africa. Imagine a scenario in which American slave merchants offered for sale Jews from, say, Lithuania. Such a concentration of enslaved Jews in an American region could have enormous effects on the character of those colonies. And this is something the founders talked about openly. Well, if you dumped an entire group of people into an area, it would change the culture. This is why they didn't want to do it. They didn't want to just dump a whole group of Europeans into an area because it would change it. They were more interested in diffusion. It was actually Jefferson's entire argument, even when it came to slavery and diffusion. What it was going to do, it was going to remove the problem in his mind. Fisher makes similar claims about the mutual effects of slave and free men on each other in colonial and early American history. In the Chesapeake region, the American aristocracy of founders provided models not only for the whites, but also the blacks who arrived there. And the blacks' demands for freedom made impressions on them. That desire for freedom displayed the universality of what became known as natural rights following the 1689 publication of John Locke's Second Treatises on Civil Government. Keep in mind, too, that Fisher won the Pulitzer Prize in history for his portrayal of George Washington's legacy in Washington's Crossing. In Tocquevillian terms, Fisher writes about both democratic and aristocratic history on broad themes such as migration and high themes such as the character of statesmen. In other words, Fisher provides an alternative to simplistic accounts characterizing slaves who were merely the products of their new environment or the brutalized victims or newly skilled workers. None of this makes slavery more just, more just or acceptable, but it does help us understand early attitudes towards slaves and the impressions they made on their masters, besides the profitability of their labor. So in that way, yes, the cultural part, if you look at Fogel and Engerman, that is a more economic history. So there is a profit-making side of it. And so Fisher is providing the culture. But I say Genovese does the exact same thing and does it well. Fisher is getting into a little more depth with origins and other things. But Genovese, again, Roll Jordan Roll is a masterpiece. If you've never read it, you should. Um, and you always have to, even this piece, well, it's not saying that slavery was just or good. And... Genovese doesn't do that either. What you walk away in all these books, though, when you read them, is saying, well, slavery is more complex. Even Thornton's Africa and Africans in the Making of the Atlantic World. It's much more complex. That there were active participants in this. They weren't just victims. So when you have that impression, it changes everything, which is where the piece would say this kind of blows apart woke society. Because woke relies on victimhood. All these people were victims. They were passive victims. It's just a history of victimhood. What Genovese does and what Fisher does, and so many ways what Fogel and Eggerman do, is to say that's not true at all. They were certainly part of everything. They weren't just victims. An illuminating contrast with the Chesapeake is found in the South Carolina planters, who, seeing the freedom-loving waves of blacks up north, declined to purchase Igbo slaves. In the period from 1716 to 1807, about half of South Carolina slaves came from Africa's west and windward coasts, with another 21% unspecified. 
These Coromantes were intelligent and loyal when treated properly. They were docile in the 18th century sense. The blacks also outnumbered the whites by three to one. The whites knew about the New York slave revolt of 1712, led by Asantes, a warrior people from the region of modern Ghana. These masters had also experienced the September 1739 Stoner Rebellion southwest of Charleston. These free-spirited African people were thought to prefer death to slavery and were reputed to be frequently suicidal. Slaveholders did not need the Haitian revolts of the 1790s to make them question the worth of their dangerous human property, though the Haitian atrocities certainly focused their minds. Fugitive slaves, about half Asantes from Angola and the Congo, fled South Carolina to swell the ranks of the American Semin- uh, sorry, African Seminoles in Florida, an area fought for by the British and the Spanish against the Americans. The history of this new ethnic group discloses 12 generations of warriors from the early 1700s to the present, beginning with African warriors brought by Spaniards. The black Seminoles joined the other Seminoles to fight Andrew Jackson. They were subsequently forced west to what is now Oklahoma and from there to Texas and Mexico. The spirited community fought the Texans, the French, and the Comanches. Their African herding experience translated into success with cattle in the New World. Their descendants reside today in communities in Texas, the Bahamas, and the Caribbean. So again, um, showing the cultural complexity, not monolithic Africa, in how these things worked out. And different Africans had different cultural backgrounds, which made their experience in America different, just as you would say with any white Europeans, any Europeans who came over here, any white British, their cultural experience made America different in different ways. Perhaps the finest example of the taste for aristocracy among the slaves comes from Robert Sutcliffe, a British Quaker who traveled in America in the early 1800s likely describing the aftermath of what became known as Gabriel's Rebellion in Virginia. He says, quote, In the aftermath, I passed by a field in which several poor slaves had been lately executed on the charge of having an intention to rise against their masters. A lawyer who was present at their trials in Richmond informed that one, on one of them being asked what he had to say in the court in his defense, he replied in a manly tone of voice, I have nothing more to offer than what General Washington would have, done, would have had to offer, and he, had he been taken by the British and put to trial by them. I have adventured my life in endeavoring to obtain the liberty of my countrymen and am willing willing a sacrifice in their cause. And I beg as a favor that I may be immediately led to execution. I know that you have predetermined to shed my blood. Why then all this mockery of a trial? So a certain amount of defiance in that. Um, One thing that he brings up, and I talked about, you know, the experience of different slaves in, in, in Pennsylvania in the 1830s. There was an attempt to have a, a slave school, a, a black school in Philadelphia. It was burned down. And it was burned down not by the lower class in Pennsylvania society, but by the upper class. They burned it down. They didn't want it there. And that's something you have to understand, uh, that this kind of complexity happens everywhere. He says, this astonishing speech brings to mind why Uncle Tom's Cabin describes early on a painting of George Washington in the slave's humble house. But again, that, that happened all over uh, the South. When you look at Jefferson Davis, I mean, by the 1850s in particular, if you, again, if you read Roll, Jordan, Roll, you have a much more complex vision of what slavery was in the South, across the South. Building on Virginia's and Maryland's regional tradition of leadership beginning with Washington, Madison, and Jefferson, Fisher adds that Chesapeake slaves, who later became national leaders, also reinvented American leadership itself in fundamental and highly specific ways. 
In their hands, leadership in the United States became more expansive in its spirit, more intensive in its methods, more broad in its goals, and more human in its results. He says, one needn't agree with all of Fisher's assessments to appreciate the efforts of his work. So again, this is might, might be where he's stretching some things a little bit. Even the West Coast Straussian would draw a line. He says, we should also keep in mind that these first generations of slaves, despite legal inferiority, often experienced less racial segregation than we might suppose, with class similarities lowering barriers for intermarriage in northern regions. Well, that's true. And also, we have to understand that there was legal segregation in New England. In fact, that's where it started. Jim Crow laws began in Massachusetts and Connecticut. That's where they began. And rail cars by the 1830s. That's where you start seeing it first, when you started getting rail cars. But you did see a lot of integration, not just in the North, but also in the South. You see, in everyday life, as you're around people, you're going to have more familiarity and less segregation than you would if there's not a whole lot of people around at times. Because it's a, it's a fluid. You have to be fluid in these things. Now, it didn't mean that there wasn't rules and, and how, how people interacted with each other and where people could go and couldn't go. But even in the segregated cars, rail cars of the North, this is, there's documented cases of this where a woman from the South traveling with her slave would sit in the Jim Crow car with her slave because she wanted to bring her slave into the white car, and that was not acceptable, you see. Racial segregation was not much in evidence. Men and women of both races drank, smoked, caroused, fought, and slept together. In fact, most free black families came from white servant women who had children by slaves from free African Americans. Might some of these Irish indentured servant girls be descended from shipwrecked Spaniards from the Armada? African slavery produced a more complicated legacy than is generally acknowledged. The slaves even included some Muslim scholars among their number. Also caught up were politicians, entrepreneurs, navigators, and linguists, as well as warriors. Even the tyrannical actions against the slaves could not obliterate these achievements, which were often prized and taken advantage of by their masters. Again, showing the complexity of the entire situation. So the rest of it is West Coast Straussian nonsense, so I'm going to leave it off there. But um, this book is a valuable book. And I think that when you study enough history and you study enough of, the, of uh, early colonial history, you study enough of Southern history, and you look at honest appraisals of these things, you'll walk away thinking that a lot of the hustle of modern-day activists is based on a myth. Not that these horrible things didn't happen. Not that these things weren't there, but you had a richness, a complexity, and that there were things involved in American history that are not so simplistic. It's not just A or B or you know this or that. There was complexities in all of this. And when you have those complexities in it, and long-standing complexities, and long-standing... Um, situations where it was not a violent conflict or a horrible situation for everyone involved. Things are a little different. Your understanding of American history becomes different. It didn't mean these horrible things didn't exist. They did. And even in the book, he talks about how these things happen. Genovese doesn't shy away from it. Fogel and Engerman don't shy away from it. But you walk away after reading these books saying, wow, this is a little more complex. This isn't 
roots, as the piece points out. This isn't Django Unchained. There's some more going on here, and I want to read more about this. And if we had that better understanding, the modern, as the piece says, the modern woke attempts would fail. Because you would see American history as a more complex pattern rather than just a simplistic us versus them narrative. See you next time on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.